Good morning, everyone. Well, you guys are really good this morning. I've got one of those in Bible study today. This morning we're going to talk a little bit about creation. Um, Wayne Jackson, 30 years ago, in 1989, wrote this. According to evolutionary chronology, the universe came into being as a result of the Big Bang explosion some 15 to 20 billion years ago. Our Earth is said to have been born approximately 4.5 billion years ago. It is alleged that biological life was spontaneously generated about 2 or 3 billion years ago. And finally, Homo sapiens, that's us, true man, appeared about 3.5 million years back in the past. He goes on to write, These figures are glibly thrown out as if there were some sort of ancient history book that records these dates. The fact of the matter is, there is no proof that these enormous figures have any validity at all. For the evolutionist, the thing is time. Time in their mind accomplishes anything. If you just leave enough time, then life is going to appear by itself. And that's essentially the position the evolutionist holds. But as was read in First, or, you know, first Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1, uh, in verse 30, and then in um, or 31, and then chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, the Bible presents a different picture of how the universe got here. And I want to read it again. And, God, and then God saw everything that he made. And indeed, it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. couple things that I want us to notice, and then we'll get into the lesson. Notice in verse 31, God saw everything that he made, and indeed it was very good, so that the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Notice how God inspired Moses to write that. The evening and the morning were the sixth day. What's a day made of? Daylight and dark, isn't it? The evening and the morning, the night and the day were the sixth day. Well, let's for a moment take the position that these days were billions and billions or millions and millions of years. Does that mean that each day that we read about there in, the, in, in here in Genesis chapter 1, that each evening, because that phraseology is used throughout that chapter, that each evening, each darkness was millions and billions of years? 
and that each daylight period was millions and billions of years? Well, could be, but there's a problem. Look at verse, whoop, I cut it out of my Bible. No, I didn't. Look at verse 11. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in it in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning, the darkness and the light was one day. But that day, according to some, was billions and millions of years. So that when God created the planet, plant world, in that billions and millions of years, there was a time of darkness and a time of light. All right, you people with green thumbs. What happens if you put your plan in a closet and shut? Not you. You don't have a green thumb. <laughs> you don't get to answer all the questions. What happens if you put your plant in a, in a closet and shut the door? It's going to die because plants need, who's the fourth grade here? How do plants survive? Isn't it called photo? Synthesis. Now, there's some older people, but I wanted you 12-year-olds to answer because you had that in school. So if these days were millions and millions and billions and billions of years and there was an extended period of light and an expended, extended period of darkness, that sometime in that eon, that age, what was going to happen to all the plants? They're going to die. Well, how do I get around that? I go back to what God said. In the evening and the morning were the sixth day. How do you and I understand that? We understand that each day has a period of light and a period of darkness. And we have that period because of what? Because we have a star in the heavens that's called what? Sun. Sun. And correct me if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, it's been a long time since I've had science, that as the earth rotates on its axis, each side of the earth, each section of the earth is either facing the sun to some degree or away from the sun. And thus we have what? An evening and a morning. One day. So let's look at, consider some things as we think about how we got here. And furthermore, how anything got here except for God. And, and I've sort of divided it down in, into three thoughts because that's what preachers do. 
And, and it seemed logical to me, and Forrest, he humored me. He said, yeah, that seems sort of logical. So I don't know whether he thought it was or not, but he humored me. First thing that's, let's consider, is God capable of creating the universe? Is there this being, is there this intelligence out here that has the power, that has the ability to create the universe? Well, you and I don't know anything about God except what the Bible tells us. Notice what it says about God. In Nahum chapter 1, verse 3, we read, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and in the clouds are the dust of his feet. Notice what Nahum says. The Lord is great in power. So this concept of God in those, those ancient writers as they were inspired to to give a message about God and to reveal something about God, Nahum says that God is great in power. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, the Apostle Paul writes, he says, for since the creation of this world, his, God's the context here, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. So here's Paul saying, since the creation of the world, he's assuming what the, what the Bible says is true, that in his, the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, that you and I, according to Paul, who's inspired by God to write these things, that we can look at our universe and if we're thinking rightly, if we're reasonable and we're rational, that you and I can come to the conclusion that there is a God, that God exists and that this God created the universe around us. He goes on to say, by the things that are made, notice, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. So here's Paul, guided by God in his writing, that says that you and I, who are reasonable and rational people, can look at the universe around us and come to the conclusion that God exists. And that we can learn some things about God just by looking at this creation. And we can understand some things about the power of God So that when we stand before God, if we do not seek him, we are without excuse. It's interesting, and I just thought about this, and, and this may be a little off base, so you know, I may have to readjust this later. Think about eternal power. One of the things, when, and this isn't in the lesson, this is sort of a bonus material, in, in, in the discussion of, of, of those that oppose creation, intelligent design, and those that support it, eventually it's going to come back, you know, people that, those that say that we are created by an intelligent design or by God, as you and I would say, that if you back it up, that eventually that there has to be what the question comes up, well, where did God come from? Correct me if I'm wrong, 
But I think Paul just answered that in, in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Notice his eternal power. In other words, that power always has existed. It, had, it is, as some of those guys whose pay scale is a lot above mine, the uncaused first cause. It is an eternal power. It is a great power. Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 11 through 13. Thus you shall say to them, the gods that have not made the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. You know, and God's not saying that there's other gods. He's recognizing that you and I and mankind throughout history have made gods in our mind or carved them with our hands and worshiped them as gods. He says, they shall, not, they shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. He, God, he has made the earth by his power. He has established the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heavens at his discretion. When he utters his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens and he causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings the wind out of his treasuries. In Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 27, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? God is capable of creating the universe. He has great power. He has eternal power. There is nothing that God cannot do. He is God. He is capable. There's nearly a hundred verses in the Bible that alludes to the creation of God of this universe in a six literal days. Just as we're told in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. Alright, the second question. God's capable of creating the universe. He has a great power. He's an eternal power. Nothing is, 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 cannot, you know, he can do anything. Is God capable of creating the universe in six literal days? Turn to Psalm 33, if you would, please. Psalm 33, and we're going to begin reading in verse 6. Psalm 33, beginning in verse 6. By the word of the Lord... The heavens were made. Two thoughts may be expressed there. Hold your finger and go over to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. And then verse 14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. What's that telling us? That the pre-incarnate Christ, Jesus, as we know him, before he came to this earth, in the likeness and manner of man, he is called the word. And that the word, the pre-incarnate Jesus, created 
had a part in creating everything. And the thought there is that Jesus is God. So when we go back to Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord, is the psalmist here referring to the pre-incarnate Christ? Or, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And all the host of them, notice, by the breath of his mouth. What's the psalmist saying? He spoke. God spoke. Christ spoke. And the universe came into existence. Now let's just think about this for a moment. I've been up here rambling on now for about 10 minutes. How many words have I spoken? Maybe more than you wanted to hear so far. But all God had to do was utter one word. And he spoke those things, the universe, into existence. Do you think God had to spread that out over six days? No. He could have just said, exist. He could have just thought it. His power is great. His power is eternal. It is before everything else and it will be after everything ceased to exist. But the psalmist says, all the host of him by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the water of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep and stored houses, storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. And you got this guy over got a name with a bunch of initials after it. And he's trying to convince our children that if I put a rock down there, of course I got to figure out how I got a rock, but if I put a rock down there or I put a glass of water down there and I leave it sit for two or three or four or five or six billion years, that pretty soon his future wife's going to pop out of that glass. That's evolution. Is God capable of creating the universe in six days? The psalmist says, by the breath of his word. He spoke and it came into existence. The Bible states, states the factuality of the literal six-day creation. We just read uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 29, for chapter 2, verse 2. And you think, well, you know, that could be days, that could be ages, you know. And, 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 you know, and those people that say that, you know, they got those initials. They're a little smarter than me. Turn over to Exodus chapter 20. The next time you're talking with someone or you're talking to your teacher at school, and hopefully it's not your homeschool teacher, if it is telling you that the evolution's going on, you might want to check into a new homeschool teacher. But in Exodus chapter 20, 
Notice beginning in verse 1. You know what we're reading here. This is where, this is where God gave Moses the ten words or the ten commandments. And notice what's recorded. And God spoke, to all these, spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the, Lord, the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his no name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day, and to keep it holy, six days you shall labor and do your, all your work. So what's he telling them? What's he telling Israel? He's saying now, Monday through Sunday through Monday, you can work all you want. But what are you going to do on that seventh day? You're going to cease. You're going to rest. The word Sabbath just means to rest, to cease. <coughs> Excuse me. You're going to re rest. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, for you, nor... Uh, no, no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is in your, within your gates. Do you think Israel understood what Moses was saying? Do you think that they understood that God was saying through Moses, six days you're to work, on the seventh you're to rest? I think they got it because remember when they were wandering through the wilderness? And God sent um, um, manna, and someone went to gather it on the 7th, and it, and it ended up, it, it just rotted. Remember, the, I think it was the Egyptian who gathered uh, sticks on the Sabbath, and he was put to death. I think they got the fact that I'm to work six days, but the 7th, I'm to rest, I'm to cease. Now look at the next verse. For in six days... The Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Now in this context, God is talking about six literal days. But when he got to verse 11, the evolutionist, the person that would say each one of those days were ages and eons of time, <coughs> they would have us to believe that all of a sudden God just changes that whole context. That I'm not talking about literal days anymore. I'm talking about ages and ages and ages. You want to buy a bridge across the Hudson River? In other words, somebody's being sold a bill of goods. In Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, the evening and the morning were the first day. 
the evening and the morning were the second day, and it goes on for each day. And on the seventh day, God ceased from his work. And in Exodus chapter 20, Moses, in giving that law that God gave to Israel, uses them, uses the six literal days of creation to emphasize their need to respect the seventh day of the week and to keep it holy. I don't think they missed the message, do you? I don't think, oh, I think you'd have to work hard to miss that message. The word yom that's used here and defined and used in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2 says whenever the words evening or morning are used in the Old Testament and on non-prophetic passages, they always refer to a 24-hour day. Furthermore, if the days of Genesis, were uh, in Genesis chapter 1 verse 14, where we read, going back there, Then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night and let them be signs and seasons for the days and what else? Somebody look it up. Years. If those days mean eons of time, what do years mean? They mean absolutely nothing. If a day is a billion years, then what's a year? Jesus affirmed the six days of creation in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 3 and 4 when he said, the Pharisees who came to him, verse 3, also came to him testing him and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, have you not read the King James and the New King James says made, but the other translations, he who created... Them at the beginning created them male and female. What's Jesus saying? It's just like you read in Genesis chapter 1. So is God capable of creating the universe? Yes. He's great power. He's eternal power. There's nothing that he cannot do. Is he capable of creating in six days? The Bible clearly says that. And when we look at the evidence, it seems to prove conclusively that it was six days. Then the last thought, is it theoretically possible for God to create the universe in six days? Let me explain. You ever heard someone say, well, if God created the universe in six days, how long was it before starlight got here? Because it takes 18.9 billion light years for the light of the closest star to reach Earth. I'm not too sure about that 18.9 billion light years. But you've heard that, haven't you? A couple passages to think about. The animals, the fish in the sea, the sea creatures and the bird. God says, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters and sea, let the birds multiply on the earth. Genesis 1 verse 22. God says to the, the herbs, the grass, he told them, and the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, the tree that yields 
fruit, uh, uh, those whose seed is in itself according to its God kind. And God said to the man and animals, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over a living thing that moves on the earth. Obviously, that dominion refers to, to man having that. But there's a common thought in every one of those statements. Bring forth young. Bring forth fruit. Let me ask you this. Little Amara? Can Amara bring forth a child? She can't, can she? She's not reached that development in her life where it's capable of her, uh, capable of her conceiving a child. So when God created the universe, when he created the earth, and he tells these plants, and he tells these animals, and he tells these fishes, and he tells these birds, and he tells Adam and Eve to bring forth fruit, to bring forth progeny, what does that imply? They're capable of doing it. And to do that, you have to be at a certain level of maturity. Don't you? Is it not possible that God created our earth even though it was young? That it was mature? Is it not possible that God, when he created the universe, that he could create it with the light of the stars already being here? His power is infinite. His power is great. In other words... It is theoretically possible that God, whose power is infinite, whose power is great, could create a young earth, but yet appear very, very mature. To the point that his creation could bring forth to be fruitful and to multiply. Secondly, it's theoretically possible because he created some things within his universe in this earth that are interdependent. And I quote, one indication is the presence of symbiosis in the created order. Symbiosis is defined the relation between two different species of organisms that are interdependent. So you have, in this example, you have a plant and you have an insect that without one of those, the other's not going to exist. He goes on to say, mutualism is a form of symbiosis in which both species benefit. Many mutualistic relationships are obligative. That is, neither species can live without the other. For example, the yucca plant. Anybody here ever eat yucca? Yeah. Yucca plant and the yucca moth are completely dependent on each other for survival. The yucca plant is unable to pollinate itself to grow more seeds and reproduce. It depends specifically on the yucca moth for pollination. The moth depends specifically on the yucca plant to provide the means to hatch new moths. The two are clearly designed to function together, but according to the Genesis account, Plants were made on day three, while insects were created on days five and six. So you have, according to the evolutionists, 
billions and billions of years between the time this yucca plant was created and this moth, or this uh, yucca plant had evolved and this moth evolved. But yet when you look at this, this yucca plant and you look at this moth, it takes both of them working together symbiotically, mutually, to survive. And that's not the only account of that as we look in God's creation. And then lastly, and I know I'm a little over, is that there are things in our creation, in our body, that are created complex. They are, as some has been called today by Michael Behe, irreducible, they have irreducible complexity. Let me read what his definition of this. Irreducible, irreducible complexity. There are some biological functions that are complex in such a way that they cannot evolve simply by random variation and unintelligent natural selection. Intelligence must be added to the process to achieve high levels of biological complexity and function. In other words, there are some things, and, and, and when I heard him speak recently, he talked about the ability of our blood to clot. That that molecule or, or whatever that is that causes our blood to clot is so complex that it could not evolve to the point it was. Because if you took away one part of it, our blood would never clot. And so every time if we rubbed against something and we scratched ourselves and it started to bleed, we'd bleed out. And if you took away another part of it, that our blood would clot so much that it wouldn't flow through our veins and arteries and especially our little capillaries, that we would die. Our body wouldn't receive the oxygen that we need. And so there's this irreducible complexity that that, that molecule or whatever it is, com compound or molecule, I'm not sure the terminology, had to be that way. It had to be that way from the beginning. Of course, the evolutionists are arguing against this. But here's my last point, and then we'll close. In 2018... The Nobel Prize in Chemistry was, was awarded to doctors Francis Arnold, George Smith, and Gregory Winner. And, and listen, and, and this is a little technical, and I'll try to explain it the best I can. For the ingenious engineering of biomolecules. In other words, they engineered biomolecules. In other words, they took molecules that did not exist, genetic engineering, and engineered those for the ingenious engineering of biomolecules rewards research that is crucially dependent, notice, on the interference to design in biochemistry and, or crucially dependent, did I say independent or dependent? Crucially dependent on the, inf on the infer in inference to design in biochemistry and to intelligent design as a method of science. The Nobel laureates, either implicitly, implicitly or explicitly, in other words, explicitly, in other words, they may not have realized what they've done, but this is what they've done. Inferred design in cellular structure and function and used random genetic variation of molecules to design 
highly effective biomolecules. Now, if I'm going to try to boil this down in my feeble mind, is that these scientists were able to take unrelated molecules or, or, or atoms or whatever, and they were to combine them in a way that nature does not, has not, in such a way that there had to be an intelligence behind them to, to be made or to, to be... Uh, what's the word they use? Um, to, to make these biomolecules in such a way that there had to be an intelligence behind them. Well, think about what that means. Here's something that is so complex that nature wouldn't bring it back. It's not going to come from nature's kitchen. It's not going to evolve. But when you put intelligence behind it, Here's a biomolecule that nature hasn't thought of, but intelligence has. Does that sound vaguely familiar? That the mind of God was behind the creation? That this order that we have, that we have a, a, a molecule within our blood that doesn't clot too quickly or too much, but yet clots at the right time and in the right proportion? Does that sound like there was a designer and intelligence behind that molecule? It's beautiful bioengineering using random variation in biomolecules to design better molecules. It's a beautiful work in intelligent design science. What's the author of that saying? That here's these, two, these three scientists who were given the Nobel Prize in chemistry. That whether they re realized it or not, that there are some things that would not be here if there was not intelligent design. We knew that all along, didn't we? Because in Genesis, it says, And God created everything in six days, and he saw that it was all good. So in closing, God is capable of creating the universe. His power is great. His power is eternal. He is capable of doing it in six literal days. He could literally speak or think those things into existence. It is theoretically possible, considering the instant maturity of the universe, the interdependency of some organisms, and the irreducible complexity of some biological functions. And so what does that mean to you and I? That I can believe that first sentence in our Bible just as much as I can believe that last one. And if I don't believe the first sentence, if I don't believe that that's true, how can I believe the rest is true? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Don't let anyone convince you otherwise. Evolution is more a faith system than even Christianity. Because Christianity, we have some evidence to base our faith upon 
that Jesus came to this earth. There is evidence to that, that Jesus came and that he died on the cross and that he rose again the first day in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The apostle Paul says, all us apostles saw him. And 500 of brethren, some who are still alive today, saw him. That's evidence. Eyewitness evidence that Jesus the Christ, our Savior, our Lord, died on the cross, was buried in the tomb, and rose again the third day that you and I could have forgiveness. And we want that for you this morning. If you're not a New Testament Christian, the evidence is there. Jesus is your only hope. And if you truly believe he is the Son of God and you're willing to repent of your sins and confess that faith, the water is ready that you may be immersed, buried with Christ through baptism, to rise and walk in newness of life, unforgiven, or forgiven, excuse me, forgiven, and added to the Lord's church. We'd like to help you to do that. And if you are a New Testament Christian and you've sinned in your life, it needs to be put away. It needs to be put away. And John tells us if we'll confess our sins, and in Acts chapter 8, if we'll turn from them, that God is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. If we can help in any way, won't you come as we sing this song of encouragement?